Here's what I want to do. I think we're up. Welcome to our series on demystifying the book of Revelation. What we're going to be talking about today is miracles. And we're going to be finding out some very, very surprising things about miracles. But let me just sort of set the whole thing up by saying this. How many of you have ever been to like, you know, a magic act? You know, someplace where there's a magic act, right? It's not that many people and that's kind of unusual. If you've ever been to one live, it really is something. It's different than on a camera where there's a little bit of distance and you can kind of be a little skeptical about camera angles or any kind of optical trick or something else. When you see something live, it really tends to, you know, how in the world did they do that? So given that we couldn't bring in somebody that would do a disappearing act, we brought in the next best thing, and it really is a good thing, and that is Roderick Rook. So Roderick, where are you? Okay, this is a friend of Tim and Catherine Sharps, and Roderick is, is a new friend of mine. This is a really great guy. He's, he's uh, becoming a commercial sea diver, and he's got a little trick for us. So go ahead, Roderick. Okay, is this? Yeah, that's yeah, working. Okay, um... I got one, five minutes, I think. That's about how much yeah. I got. Perfect. I like to get someone, we're going to jump right into it. Either you could raise your hand. I want someone who's somewhat skeptical of magic, uh, but still fun, because, <laughs> yeah, no. Jeff, go ahead. I do this somewhat professionally. I understand how it works. Okay, you. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can sit right there if you like. What I want you to do is I want you, your name? Jeff. Jeff, I'm Roderick. I want you to go ahead and just take this invisible deck. Good catch. Okay. You must be an athlete. Um, what I want you to do is I want you to go ahead and just shuffle up those cards. Go ahead and take it out of the box first. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You're going to need that box. You might want to pick it back up later. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I want you to go ahead and fan those cards out in front of your face. I want you to pick one card and one card only, and please spare us all the Ace of Spades stuff, okay? I want you to truly, yeah, someone was thinking Ace of Spades, weren't they? I want you, you were thinking Ace of Spades, that's even worse. You look at you shaking your head, yeah. Something completely random, okay? Something that you believe I would not have any foresight to or be able to guess. I want you to burn that card into your memory, okay? I want you to turn around backwards and put it in the deck so it's the only card backwards in the deck. You can also turn yourself around backwards too. It makes the illusion that much greater. Um, Go ahead and put those cards back in the box for me. <laughs> Go ahead and throw me the box. <laughs> I have quicker hands. <laughs> okay, now that was somewhat amazing, uh, bringing an uh, invisible deck visible. It's actually easier than you think, but this is actually the most difficult part. So it's fair and fun for everyone, so you're not just amazed. Before I touch this or open it up, what was the card you merely imagined you pulled out of an invisible deck, turned around backwards, and put back in? Or you could, yeah. The two hearts. So you merely imagined you pulled out two hearts, turned around backwards, put it back on the deck. Okay. Uh, actually, I can have you come up here now. So two hearts, right? Yeah. So there's one card backwards in here, is that correct? And yeah. all these other cards? Go ahead and grab that one out. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you. Thank you, man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I hadn't seen that trick. I've never seen that trick before in my life. How the heck do you do that? You know what? You, I pr you promised that you'd tell me. He actually promised he wouldn't tell me. Uh, for your amusement, I want you to know that at, at the offering time, stay here for the offering and then go. But at the offering time, Roderick is going to go over to the kids' room, and he's going to wow them a little bit. But any adult that wants to be wowed, too, you can see this is much more than just kids. So just go over there, and he'll do some tricks. And I do want to say, he did this for us just by grace. Thank you, Tim and Catherine, for alerting us. Thank you for doing that. But, you know, if you have a party or something and you want to have cool tricks, he's got a lot more than that. He's actually got, got all kinds of things. So... And he performs at Grace's Five, which is this restaurant in Redmond that the Sharps own, and it's really a great place, okay? So that was really cool. Well, here's, here's the thing that I wanted you to get a hold of. Whenever we see a magic act of any kind, you know, we're saying, how did they do that? But the one thing that we know in our heads is it was a trick, right? I mean, we know that there's a trick to it. Now, I got no clue what the trick was there. I mean, that just blows me away. But bottom line is there's a trick, right? 
And, and Jeff, you really hadn't met him before or talked to him, right? There wasn't, this wasn't a setup, okay? So that's amazing. Uh, that was better than I thought, too, Roderick. Way to go. Okay? I'm still sitting here going, how the heck did he do that? Okay, would you please tell me? What if I do something nice for you? Okay. All right. Um, but, but I want you to see something, and that is that, that what we're doing here is there is a miracle that we base our faith on. For real, right? I mean, there's several, actually. But there's one that is really critical, isn't it? And coming up at Easter, and it goes something like this. This is from the Passion. And this is that shot that has to do with the empty tomb. And this idea that Christ didn't even unwrap from his clothing. He simply disappeared from it. Or he simply came out of it, and however that happened. And that he really did rise again. And we don't think of this as a magic act. We don't think that there was some trick that somebody could tell us and we could replicate it. We think of this being a miracle that only God could do. Right? That's how we think about it. What if it turns out that that's not true? I don't mean what if it turns out that there's somebody who could do something that looked like that but was actually a trick. I mean what if it turns out that a miracle of resurrection could be done by somebody other than God. Would that make you wonder who that person was? What if it was that that person that did that and had that happen to him, what if they were an incredibly prominent figure on the world scene such that the whole world was looking at this person, had seen them die, up close and personal without the cameras and around the world through cameras, had seen this person die and then genuinely come back to life. Is that a challenge to your understanding of miracles and God and, and what we believe in and why and how? And is there a challenge in here? I hope there is. Because I'm telling you, as, as, as much as that may be perplexing you, wait till we get done today. I'm going to take that and make that look like nothing. Because we're going to see something that God's doing here that I think is going to shock you about all of this realm. In a very important way. In fact, in the kind of way that it just is, it stupefies me to this day that the Christian church as a whole, and this is not a critique on the Christian church, even though of course it is. But, but that you're going to hear something today I don't think you've ever heard before. Not, not this way. You may have heard something close to it but not really in the fullness. And I think that that is shocking because this is critical. Our own salvations, our own eternal destinies rely on our understanding what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm guessing that for virtually every person in this room it would be the first time you've heard it in this fullness. And yet our eternal destinies rest on it? Wow. There are those that are skeptical and they maybe don't even believe and they're sitting here and, and you would think your own things and everything else and you would think, well, you know, that whole miracle thing, I don't have to worry about that because I just don't believe in it and everything else. I, I just want to make it plain and we're going to do this in the sermon too. I want you to really be paying attention too because I need you to understand something. No matter how much you think you don't believe in miracles, by the time God is done with what he's going to do and what he's going to allow to be done, everybody will believe in miracles. They won't be the skeptical person that's skeptical about magic and the trickery and so on. It'll be verifiable, actual, real-life miracles. And they will be un they'll be undeniable, and the world will be dealing with that. So with that in mind, the person that's going to pray for us today is awesomely John Yahokovsky, who is leading a, a financial peace group, amongst many other things. He's also an elder in the church, just a great man. John, today, not only just pray, pray for the sermon, but would you pray... That these things that are so important would actually get out into the body, <laughs> you know? Lord, we just thank you that, um, that you've brought us here today to, um, to hear your word uh, expressed in a way that, um, at least Kurt's saying that we've never heard before. And Lord, I, I believe that there's a, there's a new insight here. And Lord, I pray right now, first of all, that um, our hearts would be open that um, that we would you know, we would um, uh, just be here to to hear what you have to say, and Lord, that you would make a difference, Lord, that that we would walk away from here changed because of what we now know, we now know. 
And um, Lord, we're just going to give you the glory for that. And Lord, we also then pray that, that whatever this is that we're going to hear, this, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I have a sense I know where it is, but Lord, I pray that the body of Christ uh, would become uh, aware of, of what is going to happen, Lord, that, that the end times that will um, occur and, and um, the, um, just the, the, the world power or the powers, the spiritual powers that would become available, that would be, be very uh, obvious. Lord, that, uh, that we would be not shocked, but that we would be prepared and uh, ready for it. We ask for that in Jesus' Amen. name. Amen. In Jesus' name. The body says what we're supposed to be doing in church is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, but it's also for what's going to come, equipping us. So in that regard, I just want us, we, we're going to be doing the whole of chapter 13, which is a bit much, but we're, we're taking it at a little higher level than we've been taking it in order to get the flow of something and see it. So I do want to start with this, though. This is Revelation 17. We're in 13, but this is 17, and it's explaining the stuff that was happening in 13. And the angel says to John, this calls for mine with understanding, seven heads of the beast represent seven hills where the woman rules. That's Rome. They also represent seven kings. That's not only kings, but kingdoms. Five kings have already fallen. The six now reigns. That's Rome. We looked at all that last week. You can go back and listen to it. It was a sermon that affected a lot of people pretty deeply. Then the seventh is yet to come. But his reign will be brief. Then the scarlet beast that was and is no longer is the eighth king. He's like the other seventh. Now last week what we did is, is we were looking at this seventh that comes for a brief time. And I showed you how you can take the language of Revelations 13 that has to do with the eighth beast. And you can apply it to the seventh beast in a way that is striking, remarkable. And what we did is we took the language of, Roman, of Revelation 13 and we saw how clearly it describes Germany. Horoscopic, you know, fortune cookie vagueness. I mean with a specificity and with a, with a uniqueness that doesn't fit any other person that has yet come. And so we can say with some degree of confidence that that seventh king really was Germany. But now remember this is an eighth. This is the definition of the eighth. So why does the eighth fit the seventh? Well, remember, that's the pattern of all of Revelation, right? It is the multiple fulfillments. I'll stack chairs up here. And I'll say, if you look at all the chairs from the front, they look like one stack of chairs. But when you come and you look at it more carefully, you see that there's a stack here and a stack here and a stack here. And there's a fulfillment here and a fulfillment here and a fulfillment here. And what we get with that seventh king is, this is a fulfillment for a very specific reason to the eighth. The very specific reason is, as we said last week, it's a shot across the bow. You have to understand, kings and kingdoms radically changed at the time of Jesus. The empires and kings and the pharaohs and the kings and the emperors that existed pre-Christ and that existed during Christ's time but ended a couple hundred years later, that was the end of a certain kind of empire and a certain kind of king. And from there on, we got another kind of empire. The kind of empire that we now know in the world today. Take Germany out of the picture. And what's the kind of empires that we know today? Essentially, commercial interests. When you think of Britain and you think about the sun not setting on Britannia, what that's saying is their commercial interests we're so far flung, tea and cotton and, co and coffee and silks and all the things that they were trading, that that was why they built this thing. Now, that seems reasonable to us, right? There's nothing crazy about trying to extend your power, and you may do it in a way that's, that's unfortunate for the indigenous populations, and I say that euphemistically. You know what I mean? That commercial interests can be brutal in, their, in the way that they do things. But behind it all is a rationale, is a, is a rationality. See? And that's the way. You can get very egotistical kings and so on and very egotistical, you know, multinational corporation owners. But what you don't get in the modern era, since Christ to now with one exception, what you don't get is you don't get megalomaniacal nuts. You get megalomaniacals, megalomaniacs, right? But you don't get, you don't get the same nature. Here's what you have to understand about empires and kings that existed pre-Christ. These people thought they were God. They didn't think that they were God's representative. The pharaohs 
the kings, the emperors, not all of them, but of those major empires, when those major empires hit their peaks, the five plus one, when that happened, right now in Jesus' time, the emperors are starting to call themselves God. That's how they're referring themselves. And it helps to explain to some degree why they made such big empires because they think they're God of the earth and they just need to take it over. That's why they do the empire building that they do. Is there commercial things and wealth that gets built with it? Yes, of course there is. But understand something, that's not the motivation. That's not why they do what they do. In fact, what we saw last week that goes even deeper, and we'll see it again briefly this week, what's really going on behind those that think they're God is, is that they're being deceived by Satan. They're being empowered by Satan to do what they're doing. That's why they're so terribly successful at it. And that also explains the part of their megalomania, which is so hard to understand, which is their utter hatred of God and God's people. Pre-Christ, as we saw last week, what they did was wipe out the Jews just over and over and over, every one of these kingdoms. Remember, Christ's lie was, I'm like God, worship me. Satan's lie. Thank you so much. <laughs> Satan's lie. I'm like God, worship me. <laughs> That's so good. You get an A. You catch the drift, right? And so that's what these kings are believing because they're being demonically inspired, empowered. And that's the reason for, that's the biblical explanation for the reason for their power. It was originally, it is by this prophecy, and it continues to be. And so we have to understand that when Germany shows up again, here's what's significant about that. I'm back. See, God has restrained Satan from doing that. From a, there's been plenty of people who have been demonically impressed, you know, and thought that they were rulers and thought they were Christ and thought they were all kinds of things. But the truth of the matter was, they didn't build great empires and they didn't build anything that would attract. God restrained the nut jobs and the possessed. And it didn't come to anything. But when Hitler shows up, it happens again just like it used to in the old time. You get a guy who is demonstrably mad, crazy, in a way that you can go to see some crazy things, but it's hard to get more crazy than that, more ununderstandable. And here's the key. You do realize in 1933, Hitler comes to power, or Hitler's party comes to power. In 1938, now if I get these wrong, Gary, you correct me because you know all this stuff backwards and forwards. In 1938, they invade Poland. By 1940, what's 39? So it's even worse. By 1942, this is what the map of Europe looks like. Do you understand what that means? That means the Europe that we know that's so stable, it's been stable for 2,000 years. Do you realize that in a period of three years, the map of Europe was utterly transformed? by a guy that we didn't even have any idea about. This didn't take hundreds of years to develop, like China's rising up and it's going to take a long time for him to really ascend. And, but this happened like that. And what it was, was God allowing us to see something. You all think you're standing on solid ground. But it can change so fast, it'll make your head swim. Things can change so dramatically, so quickly. You think the world is stable, and it is because I'm keeping it stable. But the minute I withdraw my restraint, it spirals into madness. That was the shot across the bow that God gave to this generation, us, for a reason. Because there's an eighth king coming. <laughs> And he's trying to say, wake up. It ain't like it used to be. I let it happen for a brief time and then I restrained again. But I made it clear, I'm going to allow it to happen again. Now watch how it happens. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. We know that beast is both a person and an empire. We talked about it last week. I'm going quickly through this because we did it last week. A beast rising up out of the sea. Sea means humanity. All of humanity. Okay, every race, tribe, nation, tongue, all the sea of humanity, out of that comes a human being that is the Antichrist. 
Now, that beast is the Antichrist and a system, an empire. It has seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns. This is very much this sort of empire speak. And written on each head were names that blaspheme God. They hate God. They hate God's people. We saw that last week. The beast looked like a leopard. It had the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion. Last week, we saw how perfectly that fits Germany. But do understand, this is an amalgam of the Daniel prophecy, which is actually indicating other people coming in. And last week, I said, feet of a bear, what's that remind you of? And somebody said, Russia. And that's why a lot of people will speculate, oh, yeah, that's Russia. Can I just say one thing about what we're doing right here, though, is a little bit of a caution for us. Remember something. We've been looking at things that are in the past, and we can look at them with an incredible specificity because hindsight has a 2020-ness to it, right? We can still be wrong even then, but we can have a relative degree of certainty that we're right about, for example, Hitler being the seventh beast because we look at the specificity and, and, all, and the fulfillment of it. And we say, okay, that was the multiple fulfillment, of, a, a near-term fulfillment of something that's going to be even more fulfilled and so on. But do understand something. We, we have this, because we can look back with some certainty, there, there is this tendency in us to want to look forward with the same degree of certainty, and that's a good way to become a Pharisee who when Jesus is standing right in front of you, you, fit, you don't know who he is because you got it all figured out. And if it happens differently than the way that you figured it out, well, it couldn't possibly be the actual thing, and yet you're wrong because it is. So what we want to do when we're looking forward at these things is we want to have a fluidity in them. We want to understand the concepts and we want to understand that they're going to fulfill. They are going to fulfill in ways that are not obvious. Some of that is foreseeable, and we'll say, oh yeah, some of it isn't. You can discern the seasons, Jesus says, but you don't know exactly if it's going to snow or rain on a certain day, right? So you don't know the specifics. And so we have to have a certain humility when we look forward, and we can say that bear may be Russia, but it may be something else. The leopard, the, the, the mouth of a lion, mouth of a lion is this one that is speaking harmful words with an authority, with a roar. When a lion speaks, you listen, <laughs> okay? And that was what Hitler did, and that's what this thing will come when it comes in fullness and so on. So with that kind of humility, we don't know quite what that is, but we get that there's, it's going to have those characteristics. So when we start saying, gee, that looks a lot like that, we can kind of know that might, that might be that. So it goes on. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, great authority. We've been talking about that. That's why we say that's what's behind these things. I saw that one of these heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. I like using NLT. This is a little bit unfortunate because you could say seemed as if it was a trick. Like it looked like he was fatally wounded, but he really wasn't. But if you actually read it in the Greek, it's making it very clear. When it says seemed like it was wounded beyond recovery, that's where the emphasis is. It's not seemed that it was a wound. It was a wound that seemed to be beyond recovery. In other words, dead. <laughs> okay? But the fatal wound was healed. See, it's making a point. It's saying a, a fatal wound wasn't deadly in the end. Healed. Okay? The whole world marveled at this miracle, gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon, for giving power, the beast such power. Remember, they worshiped the dragon. This is this sense of Satan is saying, I'm like God, worship me. This is a time when this is now fulfilling. And it's not just a few people or some occult practices that everybody, most normal people look at and go, "Yeah, This is the whole world. It's starting, and why are they doing it? Because of the miracle. He's, he's made it clear. It'll get much more clear here in a second. They worship the beast, who's as great as the beast, who's able to fight against him. The beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies. He was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. Now, remember what that 42 months is. I'll do a timeline and show you. But this 42 months is that seven-year period that is Daniel's 70th week that comes right before the seventh trumpet when Christ comes again. And that seven-year period that is happening in there, what happens is at the midpoint, the two witnesses are killed. We'll see that. And then there's a 42 months where the Antichrist gets to reign, gets to have full reign, gets to do all the things that, that he wants to do. Okay? Now, he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. He's not only blaspheming God, he's blaspheming the people of God, those that are in heaven. Is there anybody in the world right now that blasphemes the people of God? Right? Israel is not, a lot, is not a state. They're an illegitimate state. They consider them to be, have usurped the proper place. They are not actually the people of God. The people of Ishmael are not the people of Isaac. 
right? And you trace it out. And so the, the Muslim nations that live in that land believe in their hearts with full sincerity. They believe that the Jewish people are usurpers and that they need to be wiped out because they're actually Antichrist. They're, and then they don't think of it in Christ, but they're anti-God. That's what they believe. They're perverting this whole thing. So we, we have this pattern playing out in the world. It doesn't mean it's going to be Muslims that do it, but you get the point. The beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. He was given authority to rule over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the people who belong to this world worship the beast. All the people who belong to this world worship the beast. Where are the people that still believe in God? The ones that don't believe in God are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made. The book that belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered. That's Jesus. So the people that are in the world now don't belong to Jesus. They belong to Satan. And what he says is, anyone who has an ear, in, uh, the book belongs to the land who was slaughtered. Anyone with ears to hear should listen to understand. Anyone who's destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means God's holy people must endure persecution, patiently remain faithful. Again, let's make it clear what he's being said here. Those people that come to Christ, at, at whatever time this is referring to, and I'm making an argument that it's the people that come to Christ at the middle of the 70th week, those people are going to be killed. And he's saying, when it happens, don't freak. Because as Christians, death is not the end for us. In fact, let me make it really clear, without wanting you to go there too much so that you just do it this afternoon. But bottom line is, is you know, death is, death is taking us to the better place. Right? So to be martyred is not, it may be incredibly painful at the moment for a whole lot of reasons, physically and emotionally and watching loved ones and so on. But the bottom line is, okay, what he's saying is, is, that you're going to die. And it's nice to be told that, right? So that when it happens, you don't freak and wonder where God is and lose your love. Love grow cold, as it says. Right? Now, remember the Revelation timeline. Chapter 6, six seals, six of seven, birth pangs of the Great Tribulation. Chapter 7, 140,000 Jewish people sealed. Then Christians are raptured. Second half of chapter 7. Chapters 8 and 9, six of the seven trumpets are blown. And then you have another interlude where there's the temple and the worshipers. And let me put it on a timeline for you so that you can see it and really envision what I'm doing here, not just do it in your head, okay? So five of the six seals here, then the rapture of Christians, then the trumpets, and it's one of six but not the seventh one. Then the temple, now this line here and this line here is a seven-year Daniel's 70th week. That's a seven-year period of time. And what happens is the temple is rebuilt and the Jews worship. At the midpoint, the two witnesses are killed. And the Antichrist time begins and he starts killing believers. And after here, this is the seventh trumpet. That's when Christ returns and the end comes. Okay? So you get the timeline. Now this is important because I want you to see something of a pattern that God is doing in Revelation. It's really a teaching today, right? There's a sermon at the end. But this is a, I just want you to see what's in the book, okay? So now watch. You remember when it talked about in that chapters 10 and 11 that there was a temple that was built. This is the seven-year period of time. The temple's built. The Jews start to worship again in the temple for three and a half years. Remember the temple we said can be built up there? And we've speculated that may be one of the ways that this Antichrist brings peace to the world that has lost a third of its population in those six trumpet blasts, okay? Now, I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy during those 1260 days, three and a half years. Let me ask you, what are they prophesying about? Just speculate. Again, we can't know for certain, but what are they prophesying about? What does prophecy mean? To speak the things of God. So here's what they're saying. The end has come. <laughs> right? Jig is up. Now, if you're the Antichrist, and you're wanting the whole world to worship you, and you've got them to start worshiping you, you don't want to hear such th stuff. So you come against them. You try and kill them. Well, what happens? If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. They're protected. But... At the three-and-a-half-year mark, representatives from the people, tribes, languages, and nations view their bodies for three-and-a-half days. The Antichrist is allowed to overcome them and kills them. Now what happens is their bodies are viewed in public for three-and-a-half days. They didn't put them in a tomb where something could happen, you know, like that Jesus guy 2,000 years ago. See? It's out in the open where the cameras and, and representatives from around the world are looking at it to see if they'll rise again. 
but they can't stop it. And so after three and a half days, the breath of life, remember that, the breath of life from God enters them. They stand on their feet. Great fear falls on all those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. They go up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watch them. At that moment, a violent earthquake takes place. A tenth of the city falls. 7,000 people are killed. The survivors are terrified and give glory to God. Now, we've argued that this is the moment of salvation for the Jews right here. Because remember, we did Future Jewish Man, and we, we walked through the emotional state. We did it in much more detail. If you want to know why I argue this, feel free to look at that sermon. It's a great one. And, it, and it's just talking about the fact that, that as they go through these experiences, something's happening. And just to briefly review that, here's the two witnesses, and here's the witness of Jesus. This is why we believe that Jesus, for three and a half days, they're dead just like Jesus. A voice calls them up to heaven, just like Jesus. They ascend as everybody watches, just like Jesus. There's an earthquake, just like Jesus. Now, I could go on and on with this and do a whole sermon on it, which we did, so please go look at it, okay? But you catch the drift. Now, now just take it one more. What are they prophesying about? What are they testifying to? Jesus is coming back. God is ending this, and Jesus is coming back. This is something the Antichrist does not want. This is one of the things that incenses him. This is one of the reasons why he comes out of them. At three and a half years, he's allowed to kill them. Then these guys go up, and we've argued that because this, all this looks like Jesus, future Jewish man realizes, oh my gosh, Jesus is real. This is their moment of salvation, which is why it says they gave glory to God of heaven. The people in Jerusalem. Now that would be speaking about, there's other people too, but that would be speaking about the Jewish people and they go, oh my gosh. Right? We got the pattern. And again, if you don't, believe, if you don't get that, please go back and listen to the sermon and then write me an email and we'll talk about it. Okay? But I just, I need you to get that because I need you to see a pattern. See, God is doing something in Revelation where he's laying out patterns for people to see if they will understand. It's not hard. But the amazing thing that we've been finding about Revelation is it's actually quite simple, pretty straightforward. It's not opaque. It's just that he has to use symbolic language because he's, a lot of times he's talking about more than one thing and the symbolic language fits both of them perfectly or three or four of them. So it's not difficult. It just takes a little care, which we've been doing and it's been fun. But now we get to th Revelation 13 and this is the second beast. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. Now, a beast, what's a beast? an individual, and an and a empire, right, or a, a power base. Again, Germany rose up very quickly, so it doesn't have to be over hundreds of years. And it came out of the earth. Now, if one beast comes from the sea and one beast comes from the earth, what's the point there? What's God trying to communicate? The one that comes from the sea comes from humanity, which is the sea of humanity, all tribes, nations, so on. We've actually argued that that first beast is Gentile in nature. This second beast comes from the earth. Think about that for a second. Now, this is a little bit speculation. You don't, have to, you don't have to agree with me on this particular point. But I want to say, I think the reason why he's saying the earth is because he's trying to say it's something less than the fullness. It's a subset group, and it's the land. It's the people of the land. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you're a future Jewish man and you have seen Three and a half witnesses protect the temple and prophesy about God coming again and the end and all this kind of stuff. And then one day they die and then they raise again and a whole bunch of Jewish people come to the Lord. Is the world seeing that? Of course they are. But what would happen if now, in that moment, when a whole bunch of Jewish people are coming to the Lord, what would happen if there was another Jewish person who became the false prophet? And he didn't just become the false prophet in word, but in deed. That's a pun in there. Indeed and indeed. Watch this. The beast was captured with him, the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. See, if a Jewish person comes up who is from the same people that are believing it's Jesus, and now this false prophet starts saying, oh, it's not Jesus, point back to first beast. See what he's doing? He's redirecting what is a worship come to God moment. The false prophet arises in a way to deceive, to sin. That's why he's the false prophet. 
Okay? Now watch. He has two horns like those of a lamb. What does that make you think of? It's a religious imagery. It's a Christ imagery, the lamb. Two sources of power, two horns. There's something about him that is religious in nature. Jewish. Not just Jewish, not secular Jewish. Religious Jewish. See what I mean? Having the trappings. And then what he does is, now do understand though, the words that he speaks are still the dragon. What's the dragon's words? Blasphemy against God. They're still vicious words. They're still anti-God. But he looks like a lamb. He's a religious figure. He exercised all the authority of the first beast. He required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astonishing miracles, even making, where we heard this a second ago? Fire. But look at this fire. This is fire that falls down from heaven. Remember we, when we talked about fire coming from the mouth of the two witnesses, that's, we said that is calling back for the Jewish person to Elijah who called down fire from heaven. Elijah, a very important prophet in the Jewish land, right? Jew, to the Jewish people. This prophet isn't doing it from his mouth. This person is doing exactly the same thing that Elijah did. He's calling down fire from heaven. Not only that, and, and look, have we ever seen anybody in history that has been able to mimic miracles? Is this the first time ever that God has allowed someone to do this? Do you remember in Moses, right with Moses and the Egyptians, the ten plagues, the first couple of them, remember when Moses comes in with the staff it's, and then when he drops it, it becomes a snake? Well, there people go back and do the same thing. And he turns the water to blood. Well, there people go back and they do the same thing. So that hardens Pharaoh's heart. But do you understand something? Pretty quickly, it got beyond what their magicians could do. Whatever trick, whatever miracle, whatever you want to call it. If you want to call it a miracle or a trick, it doesn't matter. The point is, pretty quickly, God was doing things that they couldn't do. That's the big difference between then and now and the eighth one. Because watch. All the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belong to this world. Through the miracles, he deceives what are the miracles? Well, we just saw one. Now watch this. What validates the two witnesses in Jesus as God? When we think of miracles that validate, and by the way, the scripture says they validate it, so we're not wrong to think that miracles validate. But when we think about that, what miracles validate the two witnesses and Jesus as God? Well, one of them is, or and or, I should say, fire, which is exactly what the false prophet does, only better. Miracles so too the false prophet. Died and rose again, so too the Antichrist. Holy Spirit empowered. Oh, there's one that's not going to be there. Actually, the next verse in Revelation says this. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. That false prophet is then permitted to give life, literally to give breath. God breathes into a clay and makes it Adam. He's allowed to breathe into a statue or an image. We don't know what that is, but he's allowed to breathe into an image, and that image comes to life. Can I say something? Jesus didn't even do a miracle like that. See it? I mean, he's being allowed to do extraordinary things. Give breath to the statue so that it could speak. False prophet breathes life into an image. That's like Holy Spirit empowered, right? How about this one? There's a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a trinity, the dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Do you see how deep we're going here? Here's another one. The whole world worships the dragon. We've noted that several times. And the reason why the whole world's worshiping him is because anybody who didn't was killed. <laughs> Which is to say that there is a kingdom of God that was established and it's in the world, but we don't see it. We just know it because we're part of it. But you do realize that in the end, Satan is allowed to establish his kingdom here on earth. I, 
I, I need to go back. I just want you to look at that for a second. This is not the full list, by the way. I could have taken you to 30 to 40 different things of what the dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet do that are direct, direct imitations of what Christ does. And when I say imitations, that's not true. Same thing as. What in the heck is God doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. For 2,000 years since Christ, and for 2,000 years before Christ, so for 4,000 years, God has been doing miracles to try and make people understand who he was and to come to him. And now, he's going to allow somebody else to do the exact same miracles. And they're going to follow those miracles. All the people who would never follow God's miracles for 4,000 years, God is doing this. He's taking it all the way to the nth degree. He's saying, you know, you skeptical people, you don't believe that there is even a spiritual realm and there's no God. So you, you know, if you end up in front of the judge, God, right, you can say, well, I never believed in any of it, so how can you hold me accountable for it? I wasn't accountable. But what happens when every person that stands before him knows that they actually did make a choice to believe in a set of miracles, one of which was God and then one of which was not? At that point in time, when the goats are being separated from the sheep, there's no, I belong over there. <laughs> you know precisely you don't belong over there. God let you experience every single part of it. If you think I'm wrong on this, by the way, here's Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one, lawless one is based on Satan's working. See, that's how he's inspiring it. With all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders. With every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing. Every unrighteous deception. They perished because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved, in order to come to God. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so they will believe what is false. What does that mean? We've just defined it. He allows the very same miracles that you and I stand on to come to Christ, to come to the world so that they would believe in the Antichrist. Same stuff. so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe in the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness, those who would not believe, be able to stand before him and have an explanation. God is making it so clear. They refuse to come in every degree, in every way. This is the truth. Now, if that's true, Strong delusion. There may be something we need to pay attention to. <laughs> Is there anybody here who's going to accept that delusion? Because here's what it says. So, by the way, this is all these miracles, okay? False messiahs, false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Let me read it again. False messiahs, false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to receive, if possible, even God's chosen one. What does if possible mean? Does it mean it's not possible? Or does it mean if you're susceptible? Which does it mean? Here's the answer. We don't know. Here's part of what it means when you say it's not possible, as in it's not possible to have happen. Here's one of the reasons why it says that. Remember that timeline that we done to deceive if possible? Remember that timeline? If we're raptured out of here and the Antichrist's fullness and miracles are happening over here, we who have been raptured out of here, we couldn't be deceived because we weren't here. <laughs> That's part of what that means. Oh, now we can go home and, and rest easy because we're not going to be deceived. Because, of course, God would never do a multiple fulfillment. Because, of course, God would never have over here in the fifth and sixth seal a whole bunch of Christians getting killed for some reason. What was the reason? We don't know what it is, but the one thing that we do know is the world has to go pretty crazy in order to get to the place to where they feel like the thing they have to do is start killing Christians en masse. There's a deception taking place. And Jesus clearly says about that time when the persecution kicks up that a lot of people's love is going to grow cold. Now, in part, that means... I don't like this persecution. I didn't sign up for it. 
You know what I mean? I went to church. There was a good seeker-sensitive service, and I, I, you know, I accepted Christ. I did, made the altar call, and I'm saved, and now all this other crap's coming up. I'm out. Love growing cold. But let me take it a little bit deeper. There's a reason why people go out. There's a deception here that is full and rich and the one that is being talked about, I think, most directly there. But just like we saw with the seventh and the eighth beast and the pattern of the seventh and the eighth, I believe that there's going to be deception taking place over here, which is going to be incredibly difficult for the typical Christian to discern. Which is why all of a sudden we have to pay attention again. <laughs> right? We have to get to a place to where we understand what it means when it says, look, this is the way that if it's possible, here, here's how the message does it. I love you, Gene. Fake messiahs and lying preachers are going to pop up everywhere. Their impressive credentials and dazzling performances will pull the wool over the eyes, even of those who ought to know better. Isn't that it? Isn't that it? I, I said something at the very beginning here. I said... I think you're going to hear something that you've never heard before. And the, the something that I think you've never heard before is the depth to which God is going to allow the Antichrist to do the same things and more that Christ did in order to deceive. Now, if that's true, and it has some play in our lives in some fashion, shouldn't you be taught about that like once every year? <laughs> so that you get prepared for it? So that you start thinking about your Christianity in those lights and not just in, you know, how to be a good husband and how to be, which is all very important and come to the marriage seminar, the relationship seminar, and you'll learn, okay? But you get the drift. That's important too, but this is kind of important too, huh? Maybe? So how do we get there? I'm going to ruin your day right now. I'm talking about people being deceived by miracles, I'm now going to give you a scripture about people that are thinking that they're Christians moving in miracles, and it turns out they're deceived. Because on Judgment Day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I'll reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. I was doing miracles in your name. You do remember when Jesus was doing it. Remember there was people that were doing things in his name, casting out demons? And they said, stop them because they're not of us. And he said, no, they're doing a good thing. Let them go. But the bottom line was, what was the problem? They didn't know Jesus. More accurately, according to this scripture, he didn't know them. No meaning that gnosko, that no is this intimacy. Love. Get away from me. You and I don't have that relationship. This oneness. I didn't look at you for any reason, Jeff. <laughs> How are we going to know? If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world. Here, here's, here's, just the, here's the best bottom line explanation that you can get, the one right out of Scripture. Here's the point. If the things that they do glorify Jesus, glorify God, then you can be on somewhat certain ground, still be discerning, because Satan still comes as an angel of light, but you can have some certainty that if they're glorifying Jesus, a house divided against itself will not stand. That's not what Satan does. If they're doing miracles that are glorifying anything else, not just the Antichrist, just you. <laughs> if you're just doing miracles that are bringing you glory, watch the heck out. Because you got yourself a problem. I just want to give you just a quick personal story. So, you know, I lived seven years as a Christian in a very, very carnal lifestyle. I was a Christian. I went to church every week. I tithed. I was still involved in all kinds of things that were lawlessness and, and not of God and so on. And then I got baptized in the Holy Spirit on Easter morning in 1983. Thank you, God. And when that happened, boy, my life changed. And I set aside all of that sin and stuff I was pursuing and the worldly stuff that looked good. And I was bringing all kinds of people to the Lord all those seven years. So, you know, as far as Christians went, I would have graded on the better half of the bell curve. Seriously. But then God touched me. I realized that there was so much more to pursuing God. And I started to pursue Him. The place that led me to the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened to be a faith church, which we now call prosperity doctrine or name it and claim it. And we can dismiss too easily 
as being a who wants a Cadillac anyway? Or how stupid to believe that you could believe for a Cadillac. But that really misses the point. Because there was God in the faith movement. Deeply so. And here's where he was. The church had a form of godliness, but it denied its power. And nobody really believed that God did anything anymore. And then the faith movement comes along, and all of a sudden people believe that people can get healed. And that God desires for you to do well. And that God has a heart for you. And that God moves in power in our day. It didn't cease back then. It is good for today. And it is important that you believe it. And God called people to faith, which is why it's called the faith movement. And praise Jesus Christ that I got to go through that in such a strong way because I discovered a God that I did not know for the first seven years of my walk. Suddenly I had come into contact with a God who was active and invigorating and stimulating and he was better than everything the world had to offer, magnificently so to make all that look like the filth it really was. And suddenly I was pursuing God to move. And for a number of years we walked in that and it took two or three years for something else to happen which is for me to start to understand the weakness of the doctrine of the theology. And the first place where I saw it was it suddenly began to occur to me that this really depended a lot on me. Did I have enough faith? That person didn't get healed because I didn't have enough faith. I didn't get that thing that I was praying for so hard because I didn't have enough faith. That person didn't come to God because I didn't have enough faith. Now, where's the focus? Which is the heart of the problem with the faith doctrine, is it, it ends up in this very subtle way. You got God big, but somehow you become the focus. Me. Which is why you can get to stupid things like praying for Cadillac and think that it's godly, which is stupid. Okay? It's just stupid. I'm not saying God doesn't want you to have a Cadillac. I don't think he gives a rip about a Cadillac. He does give a whole big rip about you, though. And there's things that he's going to show you. There's things that he's going to do for you to show you his care, his love, his provision. And sometimes it'll include a car. Anybody in here ever been blessed by a car? By God? Well, apparently he does care about it in some capacity, right? But the point is, is in the faith movement, you end up somehow coming into the center of the focus about what this is really all about. And it has to do with you and works. And so I learned something in that, and I started to walk away from it, and I walked into something called Signs and Wonders, which you've heard about it because it's where you lay hands on people and they fall over. And we did that for years. And when I first got there, can I say something? It really was a, a good thing for me to experience because it was no longer about what I could do in faith. God was just moving in power. I've told you stories about going to meetings for almost a year, and every meeting I went to, on the way there I would pray, and God would tell me, facts that had happened between the last time I met them and, the, and this time that I had no possibility of knowing and I would know exactly what happened and I would walk into meetings for over a year and I would tell the people standing there this is what's happened in the interim and this is what we're supposed to do about it and that's exactly what would take place. Now can I say something? I believe in that. I do think that Satan used it in the end, which I'll get to in a second, but can I tell you something? That was God, and God moves that way. And God does the most extraordinary things when we seek him in all things. And if you don't believe that God moves in miracles in the most intimate and delicate and incredible of ways, then may I just say, welcome to God. Because there's a whole other part of God that you can learn about that is spectacular. And I live that. I believe, I stand on, I minister in, and I move in every single day the belief of God's incredible, gracious power to make a difference in me, in the world, and everything else in extraordinary fashion. I count on it. But then I discovered something. You know, I get hands laid on me and I'd fall down and I really wanted that to happen. Here's the thing that I really discovered about it that is really, you know how many people will experience something like that in Christendom and they'll say, well, I know it was real because you know me. I don't believe in that stuff. I do know you. I do know that any person on the face of the earth can be deceived. I do know that any person on the face of the earth can be seduced by miracles. That's what we're learning in this passage, isn't it? 
You think you're immune. Not you, we. I don't mean to be accusatory like, you know, right? But we think we're immune. We think that we're something that we're not. We're something because the Holy Spirit has restrained from what we would otherwise be. That's what we do as Christians, right? We follow the Holy Spirit so that we don't do that. And I don't mean sin. I mean actually do the things of God. Now watch. See, in, in both of those examples, and, and this has been the pattern of my life, I'll, I'll, I'll go into something. I'll learn what the strength is. There really is a baby in that there bathwater, and then there really is dirty bathwater. Now here's what happens over time. You become kind of discerning. When you see something, it may be another thing, it may be a new thing, but you know what? You know that the spirit, you begin to be able to discern the spirit of a thing. And here's the bottom line on what you need to discern. It's said right here. Is this about Jesus and glorifying him? Or is it about anything else? Because right now there's people that are in services where people are laying hands on them and they're being slain in the spirit and they think it's God and really what it's about is them. They want an experience. They want a circus. I was in the circus. I don't speak from this critically. I speak from this knowingly. I am speaking critically, but you get the point. Right? But here's my point. I don't think that you can say, well, you know what, Kurt, you've experienced some of those things, and so we get how, you know, I just, I got a better plan. I'm just not going to go into those things at all. I'm going to sit on my couch, come to church, pay my tithe, and just, I'm not going to get into that because there's all these problems over here. Where the ox is, there's a mess. If there's no ox, that means God's doing no work. I'm really concerned, and not for anybody in this building, because all of you are passionately pursuing God. I hope. But I'm really concerned for the body of Christ. I'm really concerned that we're not being equipped. We're not being taught. And I'm really concerned that when the heat comes up and things go mad and things change in such a radical, quick way, that there's a whole bunch of people that are not going to have the tools to make the adjustment. I'm telling you, it's... This ought to break us. These are our brothers and our sisters. We ought to be praying for them praying for their churches, praying for their pastors, praying for them to come out of the ditch where there's a form of godliness not having power, go into a high road with Christ, which unfortunately is likely going to mean times of detour in a road in a ditch that is hyper. Because the truth of the matter is, I think the reason why in the end it's not possible for a genuine Christian to fall is because Christ has taught them to discern. In fact, if I were really to say it correctly, biblically, I think the truth is, if you will do this, if you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, I think that's security. And I don't mean to put it on you as if it's a work on you. I mean you love him and you pursue him and you go after him and he will lead you down all kinds of things and he will teach you all kinds of things and you will become the kind of Christian who not only is going to survive the temptation, the deception, the seduction. But they can take others out of that flame. Christians and non. Because you've been empowered to come to know him who is from the beginning. We haven't done one of these opportunity challenges for a long time, but I would like you to grab that pen that you used earlier for your little post-it, and I'd like you to write down, I'll love God with all my heart, with all my soul, mind, and strength. I'd like you to write it down because I think it impregnates in our minds differently when we write it down. And I think that this is the key. I will love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. Lord, as people write this down, we just come before you right now in prayer and I ask you in Jesus' name that you would do this miracle in our lives, this incredible thing in our lives that would build us, that would cause us to become mature, that would cause us to be meat eaters, not milk drinkers, that would cause us to become incredibly discerning, that would cause us to be able to know 
you for real that would cause us to be someone that you know for real. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, this, this congregation with one heart, one mind, one soul, one strength, we say unto you, God, take us on your journey. Bring us to your fullness. Not only that we might stand in the day, but that we might be able to be, help others up. In Jesus' holy and precious name.